Good evening, patriots, freedom fighters throughout Saskatchewan, across the country, and those around the world that are tuning in. How are we all doing tonight? Share it out, share it out. Tonight we're streaming across Facebook. My regular Facebook, Mark Friesen, Canada First, Mark Friesen, Saskatoon Grasswood, and Forum for Canadian Sovereignty. Of course, I've lost control of Mark Friesen PPC, so that's gone, been hacked, can't get it back, Facebook doesn't care. Uh, but I am still shadow banned, so share this out as much as you can, you guys. Um, also streaming to YouTube, Twitter. DLive and Rumble, as well as TikTok. Hello, TikTok. Uh, good to see everybody tonight. So, some interesting things to talk about. <laughs> um, Salim will be joining us this evening in about 22 minutes to share some of his wisdom. Um, interesting article I sent to him, written by some fella um, debating the question, does a multipolar world get us out of the mess that is Sustainable Development Agenda 2030? Um, and we'll talk about that. But a couple other things happened. Hello, survivalist landsman. How's it going? Hello, Scott from Fort Mac. Uh, Aaron wrote a letter to Charlie Clark's office about the nude man in women's change room and got a bullshit response. Of course he did. Women's sex-based human rights don't matter, apparently. No, they don't. They absolutely do not. They, uh, well, we can start with that discussion. Um, Western Standard's been really good in covering this story. They covered it. They covered the response that was given by uh, Councillor David Curtin, who completely ignored the issue of female safety in women's change rooms. It's funny how even as as you go to the the top of the globalist agenda, they have they have a, a whole goal dedicated to women and girls. Yet, our city council is prepared to sacrifice our women and girls for the sake of 
transgender rights. Even though we know that predators and pedophiles use opportunities like that to gain access to women and young girls. We know this. It's a fact. Yet they don't care. David Curtin didn't address anything to do with female safety or security in city-run facilities. Could care less. It's all about the trans. It's all about quoting human rights code in Saskatchewan. That and, and, and the code only says that they have to accommodate people who identify other than what their biology is. So accommodate them. Give them their own change room. Keep them away from women and girls. If you got junk between your legs, go somewhere else. You can still swim there, but go somewhere else. Go change wherever it is you need to change. And if the city has to provide that for them, then, then they should do it. It's not rocket science. But these city councillors, they fall over each other trying to accommodate this nonsense and sacrificing our, our women and children at the altar of the woke and the transgenderism. It's insanity. It's pure insanity. Um, and I, I just hope that enough people show up tomorrow at the Shaw Center at 2 p.m. that we can effect some change and, and pressure uh, city council into changing their policy. I just, I don't understand. I don't get it. There's an easy fix. You keep people who have junk between their legs out of a women's washroom, change room. That's it. That's what you do. You funnel them into the change area that has specific individual change rooms. That's what you do. That's where they go. That's how you fix this. It, it's easy. If you actually cared about the women and the girls that are, are being harassed, are being ogled by pedos and skin hounds and uh, putting our girls and women in jeopardy. Uh, I don't get it. I don't get it. There has to be an easy fix to this. Why would you want to expose our girls and women to predators? Why would you want that? And, and, and to the people that are planning a counter-protest, what is it that you're counter-protesting? The safety of women and girls? Is that what you're counter-protesting? Because that's why we're there. I, I, I can tell you, I will be taking pictures of each and every one of you counter-protesters. And I will out you as somebody who's defending predators and their access to our women and, and girls. 
every single one of you. So if that's how you want to be tagged, if that's how you want to be labeled, by all means, it's a public place. Um, if that's what you choose to defend, all the power to you, go ahead and do that. And I'll blow you up. I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this shit. I'm tired of nobody having the courage to stand up and defend women and girls. Why, why is that such a hard thing to do? I, I don't get it. I mean, there should be thousand people there tomorrow. Angry that our city council is choosing to put our women and girls in, in, in danger and in jeopardy of being, you know, assaulted or worse. It's disgusting and it needs to stop. So, um, other than that, there's a couple other things we need to talk about. So, um, C-11, it passed last night or yesterday in the Senate, passed a third reading. So now, and I didn't know this last night, but apparently the good news is there were a number of amendments of which I haven't seen yet. I haven't had time, but there's a number of amendments, um, that the senators added to this bill. And from what we're understanding, the Liberals and the NDP, as it goes back to the House, will not pass this bill in its current form that includes the amendments. So obviously the amendments were counter to what the original bill was that went through. Um, and so because the liberals want to shut down free speech in this country and online, they, um, they want their original bill to stand. Thankfully, the Senate came together and added amendments to the bill, which I guess, and I assume, uh, waters their bill down. Um, to the point where they can't accept it as is because they want to shut us up. And why do they want to shut us up? Because they have an agenda that they need to achieve. And they don't want people like myself and others to be able to inform people as to the consequences of the agenda that they want to achieve. They need to shut people like me up. Um... So that's that's what they've that's what they are doing, and uh, that's what they'll continue to try to do. But it's uh, you know, I was I was pretty hard on the Senate last night because it is an unelected body, and it has no accountability whatsoever. But it seems that they've they've added at least some um, common sense to the bill. Um, and that's a good thing. So we need to talk about that a little bit. Also, I want to talk a little bit about C-21, which is the gun ban. And uh, 
Liberals aim to expand rifle and shotgun confiscations after withdrawing amendments from Bill C-21. And this is from the gun blog, so I, I, I kind of like their interpretation uh, because the Liberals did pull back from C-21. Ultimately, they pulled back from it because their attempt at, at grabbing our guns, as much as it was affecting so many of us, it affected the First Nations people and their ability to hunt and, and trap because of particular um, categorizations and measurements of, of rifles. So it's, that's the reason, ultimately, why uh, they pulled back from this, because they couldn't get support from the NDP um, to get this bill passed through. And they didn't consider the First Nations issues, even though we're all affected by this. Many of us are affected by this. But as we know, the Liberals don't care about people like me. Um, I'm a 51-year-old heterosexual male. I don't fit into the victimology of the Liberal government. So I'm fair game for everything. But... It, uh, they didn't address the issue as far as it was with the First Nations. So, anyways, Canada's governing Liberal Party will work with the NDP and the Bloc Quebecois on new ways to expand its rifle and shotgun confiscations after withdrawing two amendments from Bill C-21 today. Remember, too, folks, <coughs> that this has nothing to do with your safety. This has nothing to do with the safety of Canadians. This has to do with living up to the agenda that they both that they've all agreed to, Agenda 2030, Sustainable Development Goals, and UNODA, and the Small Arms Treaty, and getting new regulation in to make your guns that you own today illicit firearms. This is their this is the the master plan. Because they understand that in order for them to achieve the goals of sustainable development, they're going to trample on all of our rights in order to do that. And that's going to piss a lot of people off, including the First Nations. And they should be very upset at what's coming down the pipe. Um, but the rest of us should be too. And we will be upset. And they know that we're going to be upset with everything they want to achieve in this agenda. So in order for them to successfully implement all of these goals of sustainable development, they need to take away our guns. And they'll do whatever it takes to get that job done. It has nothing to do with Canadian safety. Everybody knows law-abiding gun owners aren't the cause of gun crime in this country. The criminals commit crimes using guns. And they're not registered guns. And they're not legal gun owners. They're, uh, they're criminals. And that's who uses illegal guns to commit crimes. Because they don't, criminals don't care about the law. And the rest of us do. And the rest of us abide by most of them. So, uh, yes, Kim, 100%.
so anyways um we are now getting to work on our parliamentary with our parliamentary colleagues to craft a clear solution that will keep assault style weapons off our streets um that doesn't even exist in law this description assault style it doesn't exist in law uh prime minister justin trudeau's minister in charge of the crackdown said today on his personal twitter account mendocino is a complete fucking moron pardon the french for those of you who don't like to hear me swear uh sometimes it's necessary marco mendocino is a fucking moron i have to say it that way because it feels most appropriate and if that offends people i i apologize but it just is what it is salt style weapons is how liberals and their allies refer to firearms they wish to confiscate Mendocino tweeted his comments after the Liberals pulled two of their proposed amendments to Bill C-21, their newest law, to suppress government-licensed gun owners. <laughs> I'm getting text messages from Kevin Boychuk. Fucking A and fucking B. <laughs> Anyways, uh, which aims to label every semi-auto centerfire rifle and shotgun that can take in detachable ammo magazines as prohibited and confiscated. Amendments G46, the liberal ban list of thousands of rifle and shotgun models to be confiscated. Uh, Polivare, temporary but humiliating climb down. So this is where Pierre Polivare is going to take credit um, for this happening. It has nothing to do with Pierre Polivare. It has everything to do with the First Nations. Uh, my conservative team and I have forced Justin Trudeau into temporary but humiliating climb down today. <laughs> Oh, God, the, the, the hubris that it takes to write something like that, to make a statement like that is, wow, it has nothing to do with them. We were my Canadians that if it ever gets the chance, and if, God forbid, he ever got a majority, Trudeau would ban hunting rifles and he would ban all civilian firearms ownership in Canada. That's his agenda. He made that clear, and we won't let him do it. Which is interesting because, again, the conservatives are all about committing to the UN Agenda 2030. They're all about fulfilling the goals of that agenda, which includes um, banning guns. Now, of course, the conservatives take a little softer approach and they want to talk about, you know, it's okay to be a farmer and, and a hunter and, and, uh, and these types of things. But that, that will limit... Um, the guns that we are able to have as well. Um, and that's also wrong. Again, it's legal gun owners aren't responsible for crime in this country. And regardless of what the gun looks like, regardless of how it operates, legal gun owners don't commit crimes in this country. Like 99.8% of of crimes committed with guns are committed by criminals who don't care about laws that's a fact anyway uh liberals are in co coalition with the ndp the ndp and the block support mass confiscation confiscation um no they don't because they can't which is why this happened we extend our hand and the request is clear. The government must do more to remove military stuff. Now it's military style assault rifles from our homes and our streets. 
Christina Michelle Blanco Beckalman were Parliament and SECU said on their personal Twitter. That's a that's a, a gun grab lobby group. She means nothing. Trudeau proposed Bill C twenty one on May twenty second as a legislative attack on uh, to weaken citizens, destroy the firearm industry, and kill gun culture. Uh, hang on a second. I have to make sure I invite Salim to the studio before I forget. All right, done deal. So, uh, where were we? Um, it targets government licensed firearm owners with mass criminalizations and confiscations. If passed in its current form, it will solidify two of Trudeau's recent orders in council against firearm users. Except, there's a couple of provinces, well, a number of provinces and territories that have told the Prime Minister that they wouldn't abide and they wouldn't play along because at least those premiers understand that in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, the Yukon, um, these are tools of people's lives and you should just leave them alone and, and let them live their lives um, without government wanting to comply with some goal of some unelected, unaccountable foreign entity that thinks we should remove all small arms from all citizens to make a more peaceful um, citizenry. Because <laughs> they know exactly what's coming. Anyways, I'll put that... Uh, I'll put that link in the chat and you can go and check it out for yourself. Um, there's one other thing that I wanted to show you guys. <laughs> this is in line with conspiracy theorists and misinformation, quote unquote. Um, from the CCA, CAC, whatever. Um, It's an organization in Canada. Misinformation can cause significant harm to individuals, communities, and societies because it is designed to appeal to our emotions and exploit our cognitive shortcuts. Everyone is susceptible to it. We are particularly vulnerable to misinformation in times of crisis when the consequences are most acute. Science and health misinformation damages our community, well-being, through otherwise preventable illnesses, deaths, and economic losses, and our social well-being through polarization and the erosion of public trust, these harms often fall most heavily on the most vulnerable. <laughs> the persuasive spread of misinformation and the damage it can cause underscore the need for reasoned, evidence-informed, decision-making at both the personal and public level. Strategies and tools exist to help combat these harms. So where this is coming from is from this CBC report. COVID-19 misinformation cost at least 2,800 lives and 
300 million new report says. So this, that was the report, right? This is, this is the report that they're referring to. Um, and the interesting, a, a little interesting tidbit in, in all of that nonsense is the individuals who are responsible for creating this report. There's some names there that you probably won't recognize, but there's one name that you most definitely will recognize. David Rothschild, economist, Microsoft Research, uh, from the Rothschild um, banking empire. Um, so they have their fingers in reports like this, and they have their fingers on a lot of different things that frame people like myself. That's how I made it onto the UNESCO list, myself and Maxine Bernier and Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson and Chris Skye and a number of others um, as conspiracy theorists. It, it's through groups like these that, that we end up on those types of lists because we tell the truth and it goes against the narrative that they're trying to build. It goes against the perception that they're trying to create with all of this insanity. And we know this to be 100% false. We know that the jab has killed far more people than the unjabbed. Um, <laughs> it's just, it just is what it is. Um, it's phenomenal. So, um, I just, I thought that was kind of interesting how we can show who's connected to these reports and these studies um, as they as they promote their own misinformation and their own um, propaganda, because that's exactly what it is. So, um, give me a second here. I have to send something to my computer. Um, sorry, TikTok, you're going to go away for a second. Hang on. No, you know what? I might be able to find it. I think I might have posted it on my Facebook a few days ago. So let me just scroll for that. I just need it for what me and Salim are going to talk about. Oh, by the way, we posted our second episode of the SDGs and what you need to know. So that's been posted up and, and out there. The third one should be released sometime this weekend, I guess. And then uh, we'll be on Twitter Spaces on Tuesday evening to discuss um, sustainable development goal number two and three. Sorry guys, I'm just looking for this one link that I shared a while ago.
Bear with me. Not there. I wonder if it's on my Twitter. Sorry, guys. I apologize. But we'll get back to regularly scheduled programming here shortly. I know I posted it somewhere. Oh, yeah, there it is. Very good. All right. All right. So I can start this. So a guy by the name of Lane Davis writes this report. And... Uh, it's called Welcome to the New Multipolar World Order, Part 3. We considered the forces shaping the world order and attempts to impose various models of global governance upon it. In Part 2, we discussed the progress of the global power shift from west to east and asked why so many stalwarts of the so-called unipolar world order have not only accepted the inevitability of that power shift, but have apparently assisted in it. I'm just going to bring Selene in. Hello, Selene. Hello. 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 Uh, hello. Yeah, it's still it's still got some sound issues. Hello, Mark. Can you hear me? Okay, try again. Hello, hello. Hello. Mark, why, Mark there, why is there a echo? Echo. Uh, it's gone now. Is it? I don't is know it? if the room is hearing an echo. Okay. Check okay. How is it now, guys, when Celine talks? Sometimes, Sometimes I, I get it. it. When, I'm, when I'm speaking, I get, I it. get it. Can you, Can hear, you me hear me now? I hear you just fine, yeah. Okay. Okay. How, how is it still, they're still getting an echo. All right, so I have to, I have to plug in.
And that means TikTok has to go away because TikTok won't hear us. I can hear you pretty good. Okay, you can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you, Salim. So can I. Okay, let's. I'm sorry with all these technical problems. <laughs> nah, it's okay. It is what it is. So I was okay. just going through this uh, this this essay. Um, <clears throat> so I'll just go on to read a little bit more of it. Um, yeah, go ahead, please. The so-called unipolar world order have not only accepted the inevitability of that power shift, but have apparently assisted in it. Ostensibly, the multipolar version of the world order is a departure from the unipolar model in the sense that it will supposedly, genuinely observe international law and share power among the broader coalition of nation-states. As a result, it will introduce supposedly functioning multilateralism into global governance, arguably for the first time. To some, this multipolar model sounds preferable to the current international rules-based unipolar model. Yet, when we look at the statements of the touted leaders of the new multipolar world order, their objectives are indistinguishable from those of their unipolar counterparts. For one thing, they express the unwavering commitment to sustainability to 2030. For another, they support the United Nations Security Council remaining the political center of global governance, though notably the loss of the veto is, count, is countenanced. In addition, they wholeheartedly endorse the World Economic Forum's AI-driven fourth industrial revolution. They also regard censorship and the information control as necessary to, the, to fight infodemic and, the, and to protect the world against disinformation. So basically what he's saying, Salim, is um, that yes, there is a multipolar uh, world sort of being developed through, I think, you know, he's obviously inferring BRICS and, and the BRICS nations um, coming out of this. And they want to remain multipolar rather than under this unipolar. But... The question in the essay is, but these countries are still committed to achieving the goals of sustainable development and Agenda 2030. So how is this going to change things from, it, it's still, it, I guess his argument is still that it's still going to be sort of seen as a unipolar uh, world if they're still living up to the commitments of Agenda 2030, right? Yes, um, I, I took a quick look at, at this piece that you're discussing, and it needs to be discussed because I think what the man is raising, the question that he's raising, um, his name is Ian Johnson, I believe. Is that correct? Ian Johnson? I mean, Ian um, Davis. Ian Davis, okay, yeah. Uh, the questions that he are raising are very legitimate question um, and needs to be answered and need to be discussed and probed. Um, so <clears throat> what he does not do and what is the basic weakness of his argument uh, is what I would uh, begin by saying things have to be put in context. Without context, there is no discussion, there is no meaning, there is no understanding, you know, of why things happen, you know. Um, 
a war doesn't erupt from the blue. A baby doesn't fall from the mother's womb from the blue. Things happen that before that leads to the issue. This man makes the argument, but he doesn't provide the context of what is UN Agenda 2030, Sustainable right. Development Goal, Millennium Goal, and the whole idea of uh, globalism, or a one world, borderless world. So that's a broad discussion, you know, and I, I, I can only, within the limited time frame I have, I can only raise pointers, Mark, yeah. because if I was writing an extensive paper to take on Ian Davis's position, it would be, you know, a 10,000 word paper at right. a minimum. So, you know, right. so given given those caveats, so let's let's begin the discussion. It is even broader than Ian Davis is talking about. And by the way, I mean, just as I coming on, you know, with all of these gadget problems in our computer, me being a totally computer illiterate person, you know, I have to talk to my 17-year-old daughter to get me started. So <laughs> that's, that's the situation. But as I was get, getting coming on, you know, in the back of my mind, hearing you speak, you know, was, well, this is going to be the discussion to the conference that you and I have been invited. And I'm really looking forward to that, you know, the whole discussion, mm -hmm. at least one of the major discussions is to go through uh, both the UN Agenda 2030 and all the other associated uh, goals of the UN that the Canadian government signed on as part of the World Economic Forum. And in my context, or in my view, to go back into the historical development of the idea. So here is something very preliminary of this. <clears throat> Look, um, the one world concept, one world order does not originate in India just to take an example, or it does not originate in Africa or, or in China. It is a global North project. Among a segment of the people agree, you know, I mean, we can say the Council of Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, you know, the Bohemian Grove, the Trilateral Commission, and the World Economic Forum. These are all platforms, organizations, that were created by the global north or the elite of the global north, right? Funded, bankrolled by the global north. Let's agree upon that. Let's settle that issue. Yeah. The Rothschild and the Rockefeller Foundation, the Vanderbilts, you know, 100%. the JP Morgan Chase, and so on and so forth, that dates back to World War One, as a matter of fact, you know. Okay. So once we put the timeline that is the early 20th century, going back hundred plus years. Ask yourself the question, what was the world then at that time in history? Mm. The global south was the colonies of the global north's European powers, including America. So what did the global south have to contribute to this discussion? Take the case of India, take the case of China. India was, you know, part of the British Empire all of South Africa, the whole African continent, there was not a single country that is today in the map of Africa, except for Ethiopia, which was Abyssinia, which the Italians conquered just before World War I, World War II in 1936. Mm. So for 
almost half a century. We are only talking about 20th century history because we have to go back to 20th century, right, Mark? I mean, 2030 agenda came about as part of the Millennium Goal. And the Millennium Goal was the transition from the 20th century to the 21st century, mm. right? So all of, all of the first half of the 20th century was a European age, European powers, European deciding, whether it was Marxist agenda with the Bolshevik revolution that brings in, you know, the whole Communist Party with their international front into uh, world politics as a result of the 1917 revolution, or whether it was, you know, the capitalist industrialist powers, Britain, France, Germany, which were all colonial powers and America. <clears throat> it was their agenda. It was their quarrel or it was their vision because that was the vision of League of Nations that Woodrow Wilson proposed, you know. So we can go into the great depths of this matter, but that one has to grab. Ian Davis does not provide any sense of that, you know. So that's my first criticism of it. And we can go into the weeds in this discussion. There was no Indian representative when the Treaty of Warsaw was being negotiated, even though Indians had sent over one million people to fight in the, in the war. Mahatma Gandhi had gone as an ambulance driver into Europe, you know, yeah. uh, but, but they, there was no Indian representative, you know, no Chinese representative, no African representative, no Middle Eastern representatives. So we have to put that into context. What was the first half of the 20th century? The first half of the 20th century was both the height of the European era and the downfall of the European era because of the two civil wars that became world wars, World War One, World War Two. But now looking back at it, it is all together. You can put it all together. It was European powers fighting against each other, their rivalry for who will be the dominant power in Europe and who will be the dominant power in the world. And then America came into the war in 1917 tipped the balance and, um, you know, the war, World War ended technically, but the war actually never ended because the 20 year period between World War One and World War Two was a preparation for World War Two. And now you can telescope it back. America was denied participation in League of Nations, which was an American proposal by Woodrow Wilson. And he went to Europe to bring that about. But the America first Republican Party members, not the Democrats, the Democrats were progressive. So it was the Republican Party at that time, the Republican Party created by Abraham Lincoln, that was America first and, and said no. Later on, the charge against them was that they were isolationists. But we will have to come back to discussing America first in the context of where we are today, because there were America first precedents. You know, mm. uh, the last of the America first president was David uh, Donald Trump, who was ousted from power. Okay, right. so we have to keep in mind that that Woodrow Wilson's agenda was blocked by America first Republican senators in the Senate. And America was not a member of the League of Nations when the Europeans started, you know, jockeying for power from the Treaty of Versailles to the outbreak of the Second World War, you know, with the crisis in Poland and before that, the crisis in Czechoslovakia and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I'm just pointing out, I'm not getting into the depths of the history, 
All right. So World War II ends, and what happens? Europe is flat on its knees, or on its belly. Mm. Yeah, it's totally destroyed. Mm. Along with the destruction of uh, Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union, uh, because the hardest and the toughest battles were fought in the Soviet Union. Right now, I mean, yesterday was the 80th anniversary of the victory of Stalingrad. By by, uh, you know, so you know, again, positioning our mind. So that is that is on the political side, you know, that at the end of 1945 or middle of 1945, when Europe surrendered, when Germany surrendered in May of 1945, Europe was just a ruined continent mm. along with uh, the Soviet Union, except that the Soviet Union was now the military giant that had come into the middle of Europe. The line was drawn and Europe was divided and so on. So on the economic side, United States, as a result of World War One and then the end of World War Two, United States has emerged as a global power. Prior to World War One, United States had becoming was becoming a big power, but it is still limited to its Western hemisphere. Right. And 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 the great European power in terms of empires was Great Britain, right? The British Empire, followed by the French Empire, followed by the Dutch Empire, followed by the German Empire, the Spanish Empire. At the end of World War One, the American economy, in terms of global economy was estimated to be one third of the global economy. That is 33% of the global economy was American economy. So America had become the giant. America had almost overtaken Britain right. in terms of global economy and GDP. At the end of Second World War, 1945, from 33% of the America of the global economy, America had become 50% of the global economy, if not more. The one power, one country was now the economic giant. Mm -hmm. All the rest in the world right. together made up 50% or less. And America alone was 50%. America was a technological power, military power, economic power. And then you might add on to it, America was also seen to the rest of the world as a cultural power, political power in that sense, you know, the American music, American movies, American media, American newspaper, Time magazine, and so on and so forth. So the America was the voice. So that's 1950 going forward. Mm -hmm. So I have in a thumbs, thumbs scale, scale, you know, thumbnail, I have put you a picture, drawn for you a picture, right? It is only after 1950 that in the period after the Second World War, 1945, 45-50, that begins the decolonization. And you have for the first time countries of the global south emerging as independent states, mm. right? The first mm. one that emerged after World War II was India in 1947, right. when Britain gave independence to India, mm. partitioned India and left. <clears throat> Then in 1949, the Chinese Communists won the civil war inside China by defeating the nationalists that were being supported by the Americans, Chiang Kai-shek, and their remnants are in Taiwan now, but 
the mainland China was united by the, under the Communist Party. Mao Zedong emerged, you know, 1949. So, you know, the two great civilizations of the world, I say great in terms of their presence in history. I'm not making a moral judgment over here. Um, China and India, for the first time in about 300, 400 years, re-emerged on the world scene. Just to put this again in a thumbnail, China and India in 1500 AD, that is when the European age of discovery begins, mm. Europe was just then at that time, in the end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century, just emerging out of its own backwardness. And India alone, according to historical figures, India was over 30% of the GDP at that time. And China was over 30% of the GDP at that time. So together, India and China were together, two thirds of the world economy in the 16th century. America did not exist, right? right? So Latin America did not exist. These were colonies that were going to emerge under the Spanish, the British, and so on and so forth. So again, put it into context, 500 years later, India and China are emerging as an independent country, you know, with their own civilization, their own language, their own culture, their own history, they're emerging because of the ruin of the Second World War in which the European powers committed, you know, a multilateral suicide. That is what it was, you know, which is what we are facing now in Ukraine, if, yeah. it, goes, if it goes nuclear. So from 1950, you see the emergence of the global South as independent country. But what was in 1950 for the rest of the world, that is for the global politics, Second World War had ended, but a new political situation emerged, and that is the Cold War, a bipolar world. On the one side, America leading technically what is called the free world, and on the other side, Soviet Union, at the head of the socialist communist countries, along with China. China was co connected with uh, Soviet right. Union as communist power. So the world was divided. It was a bipolar world. And America was 50% of the economy of that world. Right. right? <clears throat> so if you go into the discussion of the second half of the 20th century, from, say, 1945, to 1992, when the Soviet Union collapsed, nearly 50 years, the second half of the 20th century, what is the main issue in global politics? There are two main issues in global politics. One main issue is um, to prevent another war, a global war that would become nuclear. And so while the line is drawn in, in, in the heart of Europe, Subsequently, both the American leadership and the Soviet leadership engage in the number one issue of the time, which is to bring about some sort of a detente, peaceful coexistence, arms control, disarmament, mm. you know, campaign for nuclear disarmament. That is what preoccupied the two global powers, the two superpowers, because both had become atomic powers, yeah. right? And then America got engaged in warfare in the pretext of trying to contain the expansion of 
communism. So the war in Korea, the war in Vietnam, the wars in Africa, including the wars in the Middle East, and the wars in Latin America, in Central America, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Cuba, the missile crisis. That was the number one issue. People have now forgotten it. It seems Ian David has forgotten it. There's no mention of all, all of these things. That's the contextualization. The second issue that preoccupied the, uh, the major powers, and the major power being the United States, was to bring about an economic development in those parts of the world which America was a dominant power. So it begins with Europe, the Marshall Fund, the European Recovery Program. It was offered by President Truman and is known as Marshall Fund because George Marshall was the Secretary of State who delivered the pronouncement, but it was backed by American financial you know, powerhouses, the Rockefellers, the Rothschild, the J.P. Uh, Morgan Chase, and so on and so forth. They were the ones who were backing it up for the development of Europe to recover from the wasteland that Europe had become during the Second World War. But also very important, Mark, because as a result of the Second World War and the coming of the Soviet Union into Berlin, the communist parties of Western Europe are the most powerful and influential parties. Mm. You know, in Italy, the Communist Party was the largest political party. In France, the Communist Party was the largest political party. Why? Because they became associated with patriotism. They fought the Nazis. Mm -hmm. You know, they were the resistance. Right. Intellectuals, you know, students, trade unions, and the same in Britain. Mm -hmm. Because remember, Churchill, within a matter of a month after the war ended, he was out of his job. He was defeated and replaced. Right. Right. And he was replaced by hardline social democrats who were influenced by communism. Yeah. That began the withdrawal of the British Empire. And they were preoccupied with the economic republic. They'd gone through the Great Depression in the 1930s. Then came the war and they're flat. And now they have to recover. Mm. And America is the only country that has the resources, not, not Soviet Union. Right. And so Marshall Fund, the recovery, but it was not simply the recovery of Europe. I mean, Americans created, I mean, the Americans created the United Nation, Americans created the agencies of the United Nation, that is the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the Bretton Woods thing, and, and, and the dominance of the American dollar. And so it was a question of also providing, that is the American idea of development assistance. Canada participated in it because mm -hmm. Canada and America were the only two countries that was untouched by the war, right. you know, unskated by the war. So if you put all of that in context, you can see the next 30, 45 years of the 20th century, the preoccupation with detente and peaceful coexistence between Moscow and so Washington, mm -hmm. and then the question of economic assistance to the development of the countries of the global south, beginning with the countries of Europe. All right. So if you grasp that context, then you can ask the question, what happened in the development leading to 
sustainable development goal that you're talking yeah. about, unipolar world, uh, um, the millennium agenda, and then finally the UN agenda. But all of these are in, cannot be separated out because this came as a bundle. They came out together. But the bundle came out of, you have to go back to the 1980s, the work of Trilateral Commission, the work of G7 countries. Who were they? They were all European and American power. It began as G3 country, which is United States, Japan. Japan was making the recovery after the Second World War with American assistance and under American umbrella and American treaty. And, and, the, and the European, uh, what is called the Eurozone, primarily Germany, which was Americans were funding to recover. So it was. It began. So there was this informal organization called G3, which became G5 under America again under American leadership. The G5 was expanded. That is America, Japan, Germany, France, and then Jack G5 in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan became G7 when Canada and Italy was brought in. Right. Okay. So this was this was the talking shop. It is there that the whole issue of the European economic market was discussed. It was there. I mean, Europe is divided. So who was making the this? Uh, what, what is the European market? It is going to be France, Germany. That is West Germany, uh, and the Benelux country: Belgium, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and that is the European steel community and out of the European Steel Committee become the Euro market. And, you know, they're discussing about uh, 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 bringing together all of these things under one hege one control, if not hegemony. Uh, NATO has been created. Again, that's a European organization. And within this context, the issues are raised again about developing and assisting uh, the Global South, because Global South is the battleground of ideas and politics between the East and the West. Well, and that's and that's just it. So in the context of this agenda that we're talking about and its first, you know, conceptualization in the late 60s and its, its own evolution, uh, and when countries in 92 first signed on to it, of course, most of the Global South is going to sign on to this agenda because they're the ones who are going to benefit the most by this agreement. So, of course, they're going to agree to this. Um, but at the end of the day, and where this guy, this Lane Davis, gets it wrong, is that they still want to be in control of their own destiny, whether it's India or Russia or or China, or, you know, Brazil, or, or other African states, they want to control their own destiny. And they don't want to be under American hegemony, and the big banks, Rockefellers, Rothschilds, and so on, the people who first created this agenda, right? Well, yes, yes, and no. Because remember, the leadership of the global south, is not the peasant, you know, even Mao Zedong, he's not a peasant, no, he's an intellectual. Of course. Right? So the leadership of the Global South in all of, in African countries, Middle Eastern countries, mm -hmm. the country where I was born, India, 
same thing in Latin America, the leadership of, 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 of all of these countries are people, individuals who have gone to their mother country, mother country in terms of empire. Mm -hmm. The people from Indonesia, which was a Dutch empire, yeah. they went to Holland for their education. Right. Or they were educated in schools and colleges that were built by Holland in Indonesia. Right. Right? right. Talking about India. India is not a country. India is a continent. Mm -hmm. 1.5 billion people. It is, you know, three times the population of Europe. Yeah. And more than three times bigger in size than Europe. Plus the amount of languages and religion and people, ethnicity. But it was because it was British Empire, it became a one country, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it was ruled as one country um, <clears throat> in terms of the British conquest of India. Uh, India was at one time one country, but that was 1500. It was the British who then took over. Mm -hmm. And so the, the intellectual elites of India, they were all educated, you know, in England or in India with, with universities and colleges like my family, like me. Look, sure. I'm an Indian, but I dream in English and I speak Shakespeare. Right. <laughs> so the point I'm making is that immediately after the Second World War, the leadership of all of these countries, the African countries, you know, um, they are all francophonic country. I mean, when you talk about francophonic country, the majority of francophonic countries are in Africa because France was the the uh, you know the empire. Yeah. So Senegal, Ivory Coast, and Algeria, Tunisia, oh Morocco. These are all French-speaking country, right. and the leadership came from people who were educated in French universities, spoke French, and so on and so forth. So that's the first and second generation of leadership in the global South. They looked to the West. They participated with the West. Right. And the West wanted to assimilate them and integrate them uh, uh, to oppose the Soviet Union. But again, I'll say, hold on, among the intellectuals who were educated in Paris or in London, you know, or in Amsterdam or in Berlin during the period of the empire, many of them turned out to be Marxists also. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, London School of Economics, you know, Fabian, Frankfurt. Yeah. Frankfurt. So, you see, it is a mixed bag. The, the point that has to be understood is both Marxist globalism, that is in terms of world revolution, and the capitalist globalism that comes out of, you know, the progressive agenda of um, uh, the Western powers, that is the English-speaking powers. Here's something I have never mentioned to you, but I'm going to mention it. I was going to mention it in, in, in um, Calgary, but I will share with you here something that is possibly will open, you know, get stars in your eyes. In the middle of Second World War, uh, 1942 and then 1943, the World Council of Churches, the Episcopalians and the Evangelical Pentecostal churches, that is basically Protestant churches, not Catholic churches, the World Council of Churches, yeah. they were meeting in their annual conferences. It was called the Malvern Conference. In 1942, uh, they met in America in 1943. They met in, 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 in England. 
And so I have the documentation right in front of me, if I can get my glasses together. I will just read you a few, few points, you know, not take up too much time. So this is from the 1942 uh, conference um, it, that was organized, uh, the World Council Church people met in um, Ohio, Ohio Wesleyan University. And <clears throat> the, the main agenda on the table that they were going to vote upon I'll just read to you a few because it's a, it's a long list of agenda, but just a few. Right at the top, a world government of delegated powers, complete abandonment of US isolationism. You see, that was a Republican agenda. Mm -hmm. The World Council of Churches is a progressive movement, and they're saying, complete abandonment of U.S. isolationism. America must take its responsibility and leadership. Strong, immediate limitation on national sovereignty. Just, just absorb that, that strategy, that, that, that demand that they have on the table. Limitation on national sovereignty. International control of all armies and navies. So when this conference is meeting, there is no UN. UN will come around in 1945, right. but they're laying down the agenda. Right. And who are they? I'll read you the names. A universal system of money, one currency. Well, one currency would emerge under the World Bank with the US dollar. Worldwide freedom of immigration and migration. This is not an agenda that came up only, you know, in 2018 when when Justin right. Trudeau went to sign. It was right there in the Melbourne Conference in in America, you know. Then, I, was, I mean, there's another long list, but it it has to do with Second World War. Second World War is history, but those points that I read to you, they are the current points. The meeting. I'm just reading a passage of the report. The meeting showed its temper early by passing a set of 13 requisite principles for peace submitted by John Foster Dulles and his interchurch commission to study the basis of a just and durable peace. Mm. Who is John Foster Dulles? Now we know, you know, I know. Mm. He became the Secretary of State under... Eisenhower. His brother, Alan Dulles, became the first CIA, di CIA director who is responsible for the killing of John F. K. Right. John Kennedy. So he, John Foster Dulles, was the chair of it. He was the chair of it along with 300 of the 375 delegates who came to that conference from England and of course, all across North America. So the Canadians were there. Were 15 bishops of 15, den five denominations, seven seminary heads, including all the uh, Ivy League school, Yale, Chicago, Princeton, Rochester, eight college and university presidents, Princeton, Harvard, etc. Practically all the ranking officials of the Federal Council and a group of very well-known laymen, including John R. Mott, Irving Fisher, and Harvey S. Firestone. Harvey S. Firestone belonged to the family of the Firestone Tire, tire you know. Yep. 
Intellectually, the, according to Methodist Bishop Ivan Lee Hold of Texas, this is the most distinguished American church gathering I've seen in 30 years of conference. And finally, I will read to you because again, it's a, it's a five-page document I have. I just want to bring this to your attention. Politically, the conference's most important assertion was that many duties now performed by local and national governments can now be effectively carried out only by international authority. Individual nations must give up their armed forces except for preservation of domestic order and allow the world to be policed by an international army and navy. The ultimate goal, a duly constituted world government of delegated powers an international legislative body, a criminal court with adequate jurisdiction, international administrative body with necessary powers, an adequate international police force and provision for enforcing its worldwide economic authority. There you have it, my friend. This is the people who are sitting in Council for Foreign Relations, who are sitting in the Bilderberg Group, who are sitting in the various think tanks and who are the presidents of all the major universities in America and educational institutions in America and the interaction and the fusion between the government and the, and the churches and the private bodies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So this is nothing new. Right. This is a global North agenda mm -hmm. and they're going to educate the global South mm -hmm. and they're going to recruit members from the global South to be their representative. So as the global South becomes independent, that is the empire collapses, the leadership of the global South in the first, second generation, that is the 1960s, 70s, 80s, they belong either to the Communist Party, which is also a globalist agenda, world revolution, or they belong to the US-led organizations, which are also globalist in their mission and in their agenda. But what is stopping this from happening? What is stopping this from happening in terms of actual implementation of the agenda is the Cold War, mm. because there are two blocks, you know, and the Cold War is going on. And that is what is stopping the agenda, that is the Western agenda of one world government from being brought onto the table. So as a Stepping back in 1992, the Soviet Union collapses. And then immediately you can see the very first summit is the Earth Summit. Who is the chair of the Earth Summit? Mm. Maurice Strong. Right. Where is he from? Mm. Canada. What is his politics? He's a Marxist through and through, right. but he's also connected with the Rockefellers. He has worked for the Rockefellers. Right. He's representing the... Council of Foreign Relations, and so on. What is the first thing that they put on? Just imagine, at a stroke of a pen, mm -hmm. it is this conference, the Earth Summit, the leading power is, of course, the Western powers. Right. By this time, the Europeans are now pretty much you know, back on their feet. Germany is going to get united. France is there. Britain is there. The American economy was at its height in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. And from that, from that height, the American economy started going down because other economies start coming up, especially the European economy. 
the Japanese economy. I'm talking about the 1990, coming into 1990. So American economy starts slipping from over 50% of the GDP to where American economy eventually stabilizes around 30% in the 1990s. And what is the agenda? The agenda moves from, you know, uh, a nuclear disarmament, from, you know, peaceful uh, bringing, bringing global peace to man-made global warming is the biggest crisis in the world we have to deal with. How come it happened in, in, a, in, a, in a flash of an eye, in a blink of an eye? Because all of this had been prepared from beforehand. Right, and it was it was stable, and there it was signed. It was signed in our in, in the case of Canada, Canadian led the the Earth Summit. Canadian Prime Minister signed on to the Earth Summit, mm. Brian Mulroney, mm. and of course, President Bush, who was a CIA director, who was a vice president, whose family is deep inside the Council of Foreign Relations, 100%. comes out and announces the world, world, world order. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so now the agenda is man-made global warming, and it is about decarbonizing the global economy, right? It is going to be the Kyoto Protocol mm -hmm. leading on to net zero and so on. Well, Canada signed on to it mm -hmm. uh, at the Earth Summit and at the UN when the Kyoto Protocol is discussed. The critical point is the global south is exempted from it. Right. The two major players that is exempted from it is China and India. Right. So why will China and India oppose the Earth Summit? Right. They are going to be the beneficiaries. hundred percent. Right. Absolutely. So how are they going to be the beneficiary? Because with the carbon price pricing and taxing, right. which is right. doing now, wealth. Right. Yeah, they are going to. That is that is the that is the thing that is being dangled in front of the global south. There will be redistribution of income. Mm -hmm. Great. Right. Pass it through the UN agenda. Great. Mm -hmm. So the 1990s then becomes the period when the Cold War ends and the entire one world governance agenda is brought on the table under these various headings sustainable development goal you know millennium goal uh, and then UN agenda 2030 when you look at the UN agenda 2030 as you have done and as you have talked about I've talked about with you the 17 chapters you look at most of the chapters these chapters were written up in individual programs during the Cold War by the G7 countries and put through the European Union and the United Nations. What it is, is about hunger removal. It is about clean water. Yeah. It is about development. It is about electric power. Mm. Now, why will the Global South oppose those agenda? Mm. Because they get, they're going to get help. They're going to, that is the whole thing, you know. You, you need electric power, you need industrialization, you need agricultural growth, all of that, you know. The, the, the UN is going to assist them. They're going to take the assistance and they will go forward with it. Absolutely. 100%. All right. But the critical thing, I mean, this, is, this can become a very long discussion, but the critical thing, just trying to bring it very fast together, which Ian, Dav Ian Davies 
does Plain not news, touch yeah. upon, apart from the context which I have described, what he does not touch about is the one world agenda is the pushing of the culture. You cannot talk economics, you cannot talk politics, as I have been talking for all this time, and others like me have been talking. You cannot talk about it, but no Canadian politician talks about it because they are fully into this agenda for their own reason, because they are the representatives of the powerhouses in the Western world, the financial capitalists, the industrialists, you know, the oligarchs of the Western world. Mm -hmm. So they are, I mean, Justin Trudeau and, 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 and Joe Biden and all of them are basically peons of the powerhouses. Right. They're not the people who are the actual power, they're the puppets. As I just read to you, the Melbourne Conference from 1942, it is the Wall Street powerhouses that are financing this agenda. Right. So yep. behind all of this is the issue of culture. As I said, as I've always said, culture is on the top upstream all economic and yep. so what happens the the cultural preparation had begun before the collapse of the soviet union take the case of canada multiculturalism where have we arrived with multiculturalism i wrote a book about this i've been talking about this but nobody in canada pays attention or has paid attention because they think it is it is you know motherhood and apple pie and the more moment you speak against multiculturalism then you become a racist you become a bigot right right i was a, declared an islamophobe but what is multiculturalism multiculturalism in a inside a country is to destroy its identity so that's yeah. where you have uh, um, justin trudeau saying in 2015 canada has no core identity his father began multiculturalism right. in the 1970s hmm. and you know 45 years later the son is saying canada has no core identity that's exactly part of the one world agenda absolutely 100%. because because if you don't have your own identity, how are you going to resist the argument of one world agenda? Right. Yep. Nobody's talking about multiculturalism in India. Nobody's talking about multiculturalism in China. You know? No, they sure aren't. Nobody's talking about multiculturalism in Malaysia, in Vietnam, in Brazil, because they're trying to build up because after 500 years of being colonized, they are trying to build up their own national identity, whether it is, you know, Indian identity in terms of their own culture, their own language, their own religious history, their own tradition. Yep. And what are we doing in the Western world and have done over not one year or two years, over the last 40 plus years, that is almost half a century, Eating what we have house. done is we have hollowed out and destroyed our identity of who we are okay. so that we can then become part and leaders of the one world agenda. Yes, 100%. So this is, this is the issue. The issue comes down to now, where are we now? All of that thing that was put together, that was put together by the power that the West had in terms of the last 50 years after the Second World War. It was a unique moment. One country, United States, with over 50% of the GDP of the world. Right. 
right and 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 backing it up so that unique moment was a moment in which this agenda was packaged and then when the soviet union collapsed this agenda was unfolded mm. and then what happens the, the 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 global south is pretty much signed on to all the economic aspect of it but they're not signed on to the cultural aspect of it but the but the economic and political issues cannot be sold without cultural hegemony cultural dominance the americans had the cultural dominance during the cold war period but then to 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 put this again in a thumbnail this whole multicultural issue turned on to become a woke issue a critical race theory issue right it is the insanity of this idea that has gone through basically the collective west which is where we are yeah. that the rest of the world was faced with but the rest of the world did not know how to respond until this war broke out the ukraine war the ukraine war was designed by the same powers led by the neocons and we have to talk about who the neocons are maybe in another conversation but by the neocons supported by the oligarchs the same oligarchs the rothschild the rockefeller the jp morgan and, and and so on and so forth uh now joined up by people like Bill Gates, George Soros, you know, yes. Bezos, and the whole lot of them, uh, the Mike Zuckerbergs and others. Their agenda is that they have no country, they have no culture, they belong to the world. Yes, you you know, and they are going to rule the world. They are the elite. They know what it is. I mean, when you hear a person like Yuval Harari. or close shop talking about it you know this is it the rubber hits the road ultimately with the cultural issues mm. and what was the issue that our prime minister our emperor dictator going around selling the world once he became the prime minister in 2015 going to africa handing out money mm. for abortion for lgbtq for great pride but the people were confused the leadership were confused they didn't know what to do about it mm. on the other hand the the old civilization that are strong with their identities and are not going to you know in a sense compromise right. they are the indians they are the chinese they are the people of the middle east mm. you know so on the top you might look at china and say yeah this is china way this is communism but that is a thin layer at the bottom is the chinese people are a very traditional people in their own tradition of confucianism and elder worship ancestor worship buddhism and taoism the indians same thing the, on the one side the largest religious tradition in india is hinduism which is almost 5000 year old with their own history with their own values with their own uh, way of doing things you know right. and and they are not going to give it up and then you have the muslims you know and that's, uh, and that's why salim that's why the the world in my view has to remain multipolar it can't go to unipolar it 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 goes against too much there's there's too much friction in trying to force this 
unipolar world. It, it's impossible. It's, that's it's what impossible. they tried to do. Exactly, exactly. But 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 you see, they were using first the money, the economy, the strength of, of the, and yes. and then the military because they was look at all the wars after the after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Iraq War, the Afghan War, the Libyan War, the Syrian War, the 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 war in the Balkans, the Serbian right. War. They were using the muscle power to dictate the terms of the rule-based order. Mm. Okay. 100%. Yep. But again, the confusion remained because you know these countries want development. They have a growing population. At the same time, they have their own cultural inheritance, and and they're not ready to you know walk away from it. Right. And more importantly, Nor they have. They. Why should they? Is of course. But more importantly, they have. They have come about, they have emerged with the collapse of the European powers as colonial powers as nation states. Yeah. They have not emerged as empires. The Chinese have no no agenda to recreate an empire because, you know, their country is a continent. 1.4, 1.5 billion people. The same thing with India. India has no interest in an empire. India is faced with the challenge of maintaining and developing its own and so on and so forth. The Turks are not out to make, recreate the empire. The Russians are not out to recreate the empire. The Soviet empire collapsed. Right. I mean, if the, if the argument is that these countries want to recreate empires, then how about England, you know, that collapsed uh, at the end of Second World War? Is it out to recreate this empire? Right. And the French recreate their empire? Empire that collapse is gone. Yes. So the thing is, these countries are, are are emerging as nation states, and they are strong in terms of their identity as a nation state. Their borders, their sovereignty, their language, their government. Right. Now, nobody is saying, not I, not you, I believe, not anybody is saying that, you know, if if... I, as a Canadian, have my core identity, which is my, you know, legacy, my inheritance as a Christian society. Mm. There are foundational values yes. tied up with a religion, with a language, with a tradition. Then nobody's saying that the Chinese is going to come to Canada and say, hey, become Chinese. No, right. they're, they're saying, you know, you be yourself. And leave us alone to be ourselves, right. you know, and let us trade, let us engage, 100%. and we will maintain our own culture. Yeah, we will maintain our own and, values, and, 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 and that's and that's the beauty of of a, a multipolar world. That's the beauty of nation states. Precisely, and this whole idea of you know they want to promote diversity. They're not promoting diversity. They're promoting everybody being the same. And Precisely. The destruction of culture and the destruction of the nation state. Precisely. So the language, the language, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992, that emerged in the West, in the collective West, that is, you know, United States, and then through its vassals, I will call them vassals, the Europeans and the Canadians, that this is a rule-based order. Hmm. So the Americans created the United Nations, and then the United Nations Charter defends the sovereignty of nation states. The United States Nation Charter does not defend something called rule-based order, that one country is going to describe what the rule is and then enforce that rule. That is the definition of might is right. Yep. 
So now you see, when you pull this all thing out and unwrap it, now you can see. By the way, G7 became G8 after the collapse of the Soviet Union, if you remember. Boris Yeltsin and then, uh, 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 what's his name, uh, Vladimir Putin, they participated as G8 members. And then what happened? Because of Ukraine in 2014, Putin was disinvited because Putin opposed it. And then we went back to being G7. But then there was a G20 created. Well, Russia is there with the G20. And the G20 is the G7 plus the global south. Right. And Russia is there. China is there. China is not part of G7. Mm. And so on and so forth. You know, And they are saying, we have the international law. We have all signed on to the international law. And that international law is UN. There's a Security Council. There's a General Assembly. There is a charter. And anything that you want to discuss should go through the UN in terms of a discussion or a treaty. And by the way, UN Agenda 2030 is not a treaty. Right. We had just signed on to it unilaterally because we see it as our gain and as, as, as if we are going to play the role of part of the you know one world government. Mm -hmm. Who gave them the permission? This was not discussed in the parliament by anybody. Nope, sure wasn't. So, so there you have it. I mean, what Putin is saying, what... Modi of India saying what Xi Jinping, okay, you want to have something, bring it out, let's discuss it, let's implement it. But you saw the curtain, the mask fell on the Ukraine issue because there's one thing for me, what serves me, my interests, and one thing for you. So there is the Cuban Missile Crisis and you have to move the missile because, you know, this is my Monroe Doctrine. But when it comes to the red line for the Russian, no, it doesn't matter. We're going to push it right. yeah. all the way to the nuclear war. Right. And the rest of the world is watching it. Mm. And so what has happened among everything else, ironically, the Ukraine war have completely exposed the emperor as naked. Right. You know, you are attacking the church. That is the church in Ukraine. You have a guy who you are defending as a Democrat whose democracy is to arrest people, ban newspaper, mm. promote LGBTQ agenda. Ban his opposition. Ban his opposition. Mm. And he's the great leader. He's the Winston Churchill, the man who plays the piano with his <laughs> dick. All right. Right? So, yeah. so the world is watching it. I mean, this is in real time. The world is watching it. And so what is emerging, and this is now to wrap this thing up, what is emerging, just as the Second World War ended the European powers, this war is the end of the unipolar power of America. How it ends is only a question of the modality, not the end. Either it goes up in smoke of a nuclear war, or there is a peace and America power is gone as a unipolar power. Nobody is going to pay attention to America dictating anymore because what America dictated between 1945 and now is now over. Right. Nobody is going to pay attention to it. Mm. You see? Because America, America abandoned its own goal. America became 
yes. an empire instead of remaining a constitutional republic. Right. So that's why when 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 the man says, I mean, I'm just using his uh, that what is the difference between unipolar? Well, the difference is the unipolar world is not the agenda. It is the center of power that dictates what the agenda is going to be. Right. And a multipolar world will be many powers where discussions has to take place. Yeah. You know, as it should as it should happen. Precisely. As it should be. Precisely. And if 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 you Indians want to maintain your caste system, you Chinese, you want to maintain your ancestor worship, you Muslims, you want to maintain your Sharia law, go ahead, be my be you know, do it. Be be my friend. We in Canada, we are a Christian country. Yes. We our value is freedom. Yes. But freedom based upon individual responsibility. Yes, 100%. This is our constitution. And we are going to shake hands with you. We will fly with you. We will play soccer with you. We will dance with you. But in Canada, this is our this identity. Is you respect do. our identity. We respect your identity. Let us throw out Justin Trudeau and all the globalists from Ottawa. That should be our goal. 100%. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Very well said, Salim. Very interesting discussion. This is very important. And and that's what people have to wake up to. We don't yes. go around telling other people how to live their life. Yes. Because we have to learn how to live our life as free, responsible, and accountable individuals. 100%. Absolutely. All right. On that note, I think we'll end it there. We're at about an hour and a half, and that's, that's good. Um, fantastic discussion and and i hope this this puts it into a bow because it really it really does in a in a in a short way in an hour it explains you know what we're all fighting for and what we're fighting against so thank you for that yeah thank you thank you for picking up this conversation or this discussion because it needed to be clarified and and i'm glad that we took the opportunity to go through this clarification so yes and you know what as an addendum to this at some point we have to come back and talk about our constitution because just as the unipolar hegemony or rule-based order has proven to be basically an emperor without clothes mm. we are Right now, as we are speaking, we are marking the first anniversary of the Freedom Convoy movement. And what the Freedom Convoy movement did yes. was to prove the Canadian emperor is naked. Our constitution is basically a hollow document. And the yes. Canadian people have to wake up to that. We cannot have freedom in Canada unless we revisit the argument or what sort of a federation and what sort of a constitution we have? Let's uh, let's reserve that conversation for next Friday, Salim. I, I, I I'm uh, reserved for you for whatever you want, but it is it is a conversation that has to go through a multiple uh, score because it cannot be done in one one engagement sure. because there's lots of questions to ask and a lot of con confusions to deal with, and sadly to speak, our leaders are totally, totally, you know, invested in a document that is, by the way, has no reference to we the people. No, 100%. Absolutely not. Yep. Okay, sir. All right. Thank you, thank you my friend. Thank you. And good night. good night. Good night.
All right. Another uh, phenomenal discussion with our our uh, national treasure, Salim Mansour. Uh, he wrapped that up in a tight little bow. I like that. This will be a good one. Um, so that's going to be a wrap for tonight. Tomorrow in Saskatoon, 2 p.m. at the Shaw Centre, if we can't come together en masse to defend women and girls because the state, i.e. Saskatoon City Council, can't for the life of them defend women and girls and their safety, then we have to do it. We have to come together. We have to do it. So I, I'm hoping for a huge attendance tomorrow to make the point as strong as we can make it. Um, it's incredibly important. We have to do this. And this is part of taking responsibility back. Can everybody hear me okay? Because William says he can't hear me very well. Are you guys hearing me okay? Okay. All right. Good. So, uh, so yeah, so we have to do it because our city council has decided they don't care about the safety, security of women and girls. That's their position. They chose not to address it, so it is what it is. We have to force them to. So uh, I hope to see many, many, many of you there tomorrow. Um, and hopefully we can affect the change that's necessary and uh, shine a light on this. So thanks, guys. Thanks for sharing this. Thanks for coming in, and uh, we'll see you next time. Possibly tomorrow night, maybe Sunday night. I don't know. See how it goes. Remember, globalism, bad. Nationalism, good. All right. Ciao for now.